can we open our Bibles, chapter 9, book of Acts? <clears throat> and we are going to, to see verse 1 to verse 31. Have you ever suffered any kind of persecution? Any kind of persecution? My daughter said that she's been persecuted playing tag. But I am talking about real persecution when your life is at stake, when you have to run for your life. When I was a teenager, I was uh, persecuted by, by a gang in Mexico City. And I believe that my life was at stake at that time. So I had to hide for three months in my house. And I will never forget the feeling of being hunted. I remember that amidst the shadows of fear, I felt vulnerable at every step, a step as if the world had turned against me. Paranoia weighed heavily on me, and each glance behind me sparked alarm. Every breath felt tainted by the looming shadow of their presence. They were like relentless ghosts haunting me, every, my every thought. A mix of paranoia and helplessness within me created a storm of emotions spinning in the pit of my stomach every single day. The world outside became a dangerous landscape. Whenever I had to go out for an errand, every alleyway and every corner concealed potential ambushes. I saw threats everywhere. My mind was full of the relentless chase of unseen enemies. The air itself seemed to carry the heavy smell of suspicion, suffocating any appearance of peace. And in the solitude of my thoughts, I crafted escape plans in case they found me. Anxiety and dread were always with me. And sleep offered no refuge, as dreams became battlegrounds where the echoes of the gang persecuting me resonated persistently. Each day felt like a trial, a relentless journey through a maze of suspicion, longing for peace. I really felt like I was drowning in the suffocating embrace of this persecution. And I am telling you this because I want you to picture the feeling of the persecuted early church. They were being oppressed, chased, tracked down, hunted down by someone worse than any gang. They were persecuted by Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was no ordinary man. He was a rising star among the religious elite. The Pharisees admired him. His dedication to preserving the sanctity of their faith was 
unmatched. His presence commanded attention, and his fervor for the traditions of Judaism burned like a relentless flame within him. And Saul, Saul perceived a threat in the appearance of a new sect, the followers of the way. As the whispers of this growing movement grew louder and agitation troubled Saul's core, the reports of a teacher named Jesus and his followers who claimed a resurrection fueled Saul's sense of urgency. To him, these believers were not just a deviation, they were a danger to the very fabric of the faith he held dear. And a crucial moment highlights Saul's intense opposition, the stoning of Stephen. In the shadow of that brutal act, Saul stood as a sentinel of religious purity, and his approval of Stephen's execution sent shock waves through the early Christian community, casting a cloud of fear and uncertainty over those who dared to align themselves with the followers of the way. But Saul's mission didn't end with the death of Stephen. The fire of persecution kindled by his determination continued to burn bright. He set out on a ruthless campaign to uproot this new sect, tracking down believers and overseeing their imprisonment. The city of Jerusalem became a battleground, and Saul, armed with authority, led the charge against those he deemed heretics. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was like a beast thirsty for blood. He scattered Christians from Jerusalem. Entire families had to leave their houses, friends, jobs, and all their lives fleeing throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Saul, Saul's presence struck fear into their hearts. It was a man like a rampaging wild beast in his hateful opposition to Christians. He was not just making threats, he helped bring actual executions. He was barbarous. He was cruel. He was evil. He was a Jew, a Roman citizen, which gave him certain privileges, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He was completely devoted to the traditions. He was immersed in the law. He was proud of his heritage. He was stoic. His feet would never tire, tire of, of fulfilling his task. He was an expert in Judaism, an expert in the Old Testament. He was above his peers. He was rigid, zealous, legalistic, 
pharisaical, traditional. And the meaning of the name Saul is big. And yes, he was big, even great, in all that he did. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, was angry, infuriated with Christian, because Jesus represented exactly the opposite of his beliefs. Christians were saying that believing in Jesus was crucial for salvation, suggesting that salvation was not ensured by fulfilling the law. So for Saul, Jesus and the law were incompatible. The Jews didn't need two saviors. It was either the law or it was Jesus. Therefore, Saul decided that the followers of the way had to be annihilated. And by the way, no one commanded Saul to eradicate Christians. It was personal choice. He was satisfying his own zealous desires. And he would write later in chapter 26, I, myself, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority of the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. So make no mistake, dear friend, Saul would kill you, and he would kill me. He was totally blinded by his prejudice and pride. He was so blind that he was fighting against the one he believed he was defending. His zealousness blinded him to the truth. So Saul was like a boar rampaging through a garden or an army devastating a city. After successfully clearing Jerusalem of those he believed to be heretics, he decided that he himself would go after them in hot pursuit. And then chapter 9, verse 1. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul plans a raid on Damascus, like a fierce war horse eager for conquest, breathing fury. And by the way, the word breathing in verse 9 is translated literally as still breathing in, not breathing out threats and murder, breathing in. That is, he breathed to slaughter, arrest, and kill Christians, never satisfied until they were exterminated everywhere. Verse 3. Now, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. 
And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Imagine a vast, arid desert when the sun beats down persistently and the wind is suffocating. In this desolate landscape, Saul marches with determination, his cloak blowing behind him. He face, his face is set like flint, his eyes ablaze with seal. He's on a mission, a mission he believes is divinely ordained. As Saul trails along the dusty road of Damascus, he carries with him letters of authority to arrest and persecute followers of the way. He believes he is purging the Jewish faith of heresy, safeguarding its purity. Suddenly, the bright blue sky is shattered by a brilliant light that eclipses the sun Saul is thrown to the ground, perhaps his eyes wide with terror and confusion. Amid this radiant glory, a voice, authoritative yet compassionate, calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The question resonates through the arid air, penetrating Saul's heart more profoundly than any accusation ever could. In that surreal moment, Saul recognized that that divine person was God, but he couldn't identify him. So he asked, who are you, Lord? He could never have imagined, even in his wild, wildest dreams, and he was going to hear the name that he hated most, his biggest enemy. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Dear friends, that wasn't merely an earthly confrontation. It was a cosmic clash of beliefs, a revelation that transcended the physical realm the great persecutor now lay on the desert floor, blinded, not just by the celestial light, but by the recognition that the very faith he sought to extinguish now confronted him face to face. The once proud zealot lay on the desert floor, his eyes wide with a mixture of terror and awe. The encounter transcended the physical, tearing down the walls of Saul's convictions and exposing the vulnerability of his soul. 
The radiant light became a stream to the depths of his heart, revealing the fractures in his beliefs. And so great was Saul's shock that he couldn't eat or drink for three days. I imagine that for those days, he was trying to reconcile his theology and his beliefs with the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Because the very Jesus he opposed now challenged him to reconsider the path he had chosen. This encounter that transcended the physical realm destroyed the foundations of Saul's conviction. And that moment would change not only him, but the world forever. Our world would never be the same again. And so great was Saul's transformation that it needed to be reflected in his name. And so we are told in chapter 13, verse 9, that his name was changed to Paul, which means little. No more Saul the big, the stoic, the proud, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, but Paul the little, the humble, the meek, the missionary, the theologian, the evangelistic, the pastor, the teacher, the preacher, the follower of Jesus. Now he is Paul, the chief of sinners, as he would call himself. And Paul, the author of 13 of the New Testament books, the dominant figure for most of the book of Acts, the main player on the stage after our Lord ascends back into heaven. Now he's Paul, the inspired author of books that shape all of our theology, all of our understanding of the gospel, and its depth and height and length and breadth. And breadth. His conversion is one of the greatest story of human history and would shape the world forever. For Saul, the physical effects are devastating. He appears utterly helpless. Getting up from the ground, he opens his eyes and discovers he's blind. Led by the hand into the city, he neither eats nor drinks for three days. The blindness that showed his spiritual bankruptcy will last only a few days. But the spiritual effects on Saul will last a lifetime because his whole spiritual world was turned upside down. What was gain will become loss. What was a batch of honor will become a lifelong shameful blot of his character. Indeed, he was so roughly shaken that his hardened heart was broken and made ready to follow the commands of his new master, Jesus. Now, verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The fire breather has lost his fury. Saul is now blind and he has been praying and fasting for three days. Perhaps he's trying to work out what just happened to him because now all his aspirations, efforts, pursuits, religious achievements, and spiritual honors amounted to nothing. So Anania receives a divine message where God has coordinated a meeting in which he would restore Paul's sight. However, Ananias is unsure and says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Of course, the whole idea of going to meet Saul seems like madness because Ananias no, has no idea about the Damascus Road encounter. And in fact, he has heard a lot of Saul his evil reputation has preceded him. So Ananias was clearly overwhelmed. However, the Lord did not rebuke Ananias, but encouraged him. The Lord says, Saul is praying. That would be a good sign for Ananias. And then God says to Ananias in verse 15, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. In other words, Saul is selected as a special instrument of God, a vessel chosen for his purpose, filled with truth and honor, sanctified and suited for the master's service. Saul, in a unique way, is miraculously, miraculously and personally called by Jesus to be an apostle. So God says to Ananias, firstly, his prayer should ease your fear. Secondly, I command you to go, so fear not. Thirdly, he is my chosen vessel to preach the gospel he once persecuted. So be encouraged, Ananias, because also I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I think all of this, in a sense, is in a sense to ease the fears of Ananias. I think this is turning the tables. Saul was the one who made everybody suffer but he will become the sufferer. He's not going to be the one persecuting others. He's going to be the one persecuted. And later, Saul will write in 2 Corinthians 11:23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more, in far more labors, far more imprisonment beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journey in dangers from rivers and robbers. And a countryman and Gentiles in the city 
in the wilderness, on the sea among false brethren. I have seen labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. His, his whole life was one of suffering, and he ended it as a martyr. So Ananias, verse 17, obeying God, departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. You know, something has changed. Ananias says, brother Saul. No more fear. Saul is part of the family now. And how does Saul respond? There fell from his eyes something like scales. Not actual scales, but it was as if scales had fallen off his eyes. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Saul now sees the world with a new vision. Physically and spiritually, he gets baptized and enters into God's family. And verse 17 says that he was also filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not something mystical, esoteric, or ecstatic. Rather, it simply means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And you come under his control by submitting to his will. And you submit to his will by obeying his word. Ephesians, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Parallel, Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you obey the word of God, you are being led by the Holy Spirit. So you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. Spirit-filled husbands treat their wives the way they should. Spirit-filled wives treat their husbands the way they should. Spirit-filled parents care for their children properly. Spirit-filled Children obey their parents. Spirit-filled masters take care of their servants. Spirit-filled servants honor their masters. Being filled by the Spirit is living according to the Word of God. And this is exactly what we see in Saul of Tarsus. Having been filled by the Spirit, he was ready to obey his new master. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul's conversion is so radical that he immediately goes, goes from pre persecuting Christians to preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So dramatic was Saul's transformation 
that many couldn't believe it. But here we have someone who was born again, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and is obeying God's commands. Dear friends, when we believe the gospel, our whole being is changed. We receive a new spirit and a new heart. And Saul is a good example. Now he's a new being. He has a new mind. He has a new heart, a new spirit, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likes and dislikes, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, a new love for things once hated, a new hatred by, for things once loved, new thoughts about God, and new thoughts about the world. He was on a mission, preaching Christ. And this mission was not going to be easy. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But the plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This new soul was willing to take all risks to preach Christ. Health and safety were not in his vocabulary. This is the man who would write, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know what, dear friends? It costs something to be a real Christian. There are enemies to overcome, spiritual battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, and Egypt to be forsaken, a narrow way to follow, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. And dear friends, conversion is not settling down in an armchair and strolling off to heaven. That is not our calling. Conversion is the beginning of a mighty conflict that will cost you everything. For the newly converted soul of Tarsus, it was not enough to be earnest, uncompromising, wholehearted, fervent in the spirit. That was not enough. He saw one thing. He cared for one thing. He lived for one thing. He was swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing was to please God. It didn't matter to Saul whether he lived or whether he died, whether he had health or whether he had sickness, whether he was rich or whether he was poor, whether he pleased man or whether he caused offense, whether he was thought wise or whether he was thought foolish, whether he was blamed or whether he was praised, whether he received honor, or whether he received shame. For all this, Saul cared nothing at all. He burned for only one thing, to advance God's kingdom. So what about you? What about you, dear friend? Are you sitting in an armchair waiting for heaven? Do you have your priorities sorted out according to God's word? And I know 
we may not have had such a dramatic encounter with God. Yet, we are filled with the same Holy Spirit. So, dear friend, take heart and fight the good battle of faith. God will be by your side. So, in the end, we just need to cooperate. Verse 26, and when he, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. As all stepped into the light, the weight of his past persecution bore down on him. The ones he previously sought to silence now concealed skepticism and fear. But Barnabas, who proved to be a son of encouragement, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul's life was turned upside down on that road. Now he's turning his world upside down. His conversion was not just a one-time event, but something that mark, marked the beginning of a lifelong journey of transformation. He faced opposition, skepticism, and challenges, yet he continued to grow in his faith, and the great persecutor became the great proclaimer of the gospel. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. The whole point for Saul was to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And what was the result? They were attempting to put him to death. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him off to Tarsus. Saul was so precious for the early church. He had a new family that cared for him, and they knew his capabilities. So they sent, they sent him away to keep him safe. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built, built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What started with a violent persecution now finishes with peace. Saul's conversion so impacted his world that afterwards he was to bring peace to the region. Dear friend, if God could change a fire-breathing dragon like Saul, he can change you if you are not a believer yet. Remember, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. 